8 talks about those who go to the lake of fire and idolaters are on that list. Very serious stuff. And, but guess what? God was merciful. Instead of just wiping the entire nation out, he brought them into exile, into Assyrian, the captivity of the Assyrians who were the world empire at that time. 150 years later or so, about approximately, Judah, the southern kingdom, this was the 10 tribes of the northern kingdom that we're dealing with in Hosea, the southern kingdom, Judah and Benjamin would also go into exile, but Babylonians had taken over the world. The empire was now Babylon after Assyria and the Judah southern kingdom went into exile as well. So it's quite amazing when you look at this because God wants to show how much he loves them and when he made a covenant with them at Mount Sinai, he calls it a marriage covenant that he had become a husband to them. And they had become his wife, Israel, so to speak. But now, and I showed you last week, he was giving them a writing of divorcement. According to Jeremiah 3, which deals mostly with Judah, it also mentions the southern kingdom too. And he says he gave them a writing of divorcement because they only came back to him how? In pretense, remember. They hardened their hearts. So what happens? God tells Hosea, because he wants to illustrate, because in Hosea chapter 12, he says he speaks to his people through parables, through the prophets, through visions and parables. He's going to give them a living parable. And Hosea, you want to serve me? Great. You're going to have a rough life. You're going to marry an adulterous woman, a prostitute, who's going to become adulterous to you. You're going to be a picture of me, basically, saying, and what I'm going through with my people. And the woman I'm going to have you marry named Gomer is going to be a picture of Israel, what they've become. And the pain that you're going to experience and what she's going to put you through is going to be a picture of the pain that Israel puts me through. And when people say, how could she do that to him? He loved her so much. Hopefully they'll get it. Hopefully they'll see how much I've loved them and what they're doing to me. So he brings it down where the cookies are on the table, he gets real practical in this illustration to where you can vividly see, wow, this is the kind of relationship God has for us, and look what we've done. Something that many wives, most wives and most husbands said they would never do their spouse, we're doing to God. Wow, how powerful is that? So this is quite interesting, and it's very, very fascinating. And then you remember, he had him name his children, right? Named his first son, Jezreel, which was a land of, signified the land of slaughter. The, even the names of the kids were prophetic. The second and third ch children, you know, uh, Loami, a son, wasn't, wasn't his son. It was another man's son. She was an adulteress. Name of the child, name him this. What's the name, Loami? Lo, Lo, not, Ami, my people, not my child, or not my children. It's a picture of Israel. You're not my children. Name the other kid, the daughter, okay? And it's just amazing. Uh, and the daughter, Ruhamah, lo, not Ruhamah. Lo is not Ruhamah, you know, not pitied. No compassion, not having pity on you. Because they came to the point where she wouldn't, Gomer wouldn't repent, right? And then it's quite interesting because as we looked at more and more at this, we saw that she became a slave, that she's on the auction block. And now, and that's what sin does, right? The Bible says there's pleasure in sin for a season, man. There's some kicks, but then there's a radical kickback. And now Gomer ends up going from man to man, prostituting herself, 
And she has this man, Hosea, that loves her, and now she's for sale as a slave. And she's stripped naked. And we read about how she'd be stripped naked. And we read in the Old Testament that God said when his people turn from him, he'll, let the, he'll have them be enslaved to other nations because he could just wipe them out. He could just kill them. Okay, you're worshiping false gods. You're giving yourself over to the, the, the sex with animals, sacrificing your children to the fire, burning them to death for your, to, to, these, to Moloch and Topheth and so forth. You're worshiping the Baals. You're doing all this. He just wipe them out. Sick sin they were involved in. Killing each other, unjustly robbing each other, uh, unjustly treating the poor with no compassion. He could, but he, lets them go into, he has them go into slavery, which is actually mercy, so they could repent. Right? God could just wipe us out, but sometimes, but if you get into sin, man, you'll be enslaved to sin. And hopefully you'll wake up because God will use that to discipline you. And you'll cry out to him. But God calls him, Hosea, to buy her back. To buy her off the slave market, right? And he spends, what was it, 15 shekels of silver, right? Pretty amazing, you know? And a homer and a half of barley, Wow, which wasn't a lot of money because she wasn't worth that much in people's eyes at that point. She was a used up woman. But what is all this a picture of? He sacrifices to get her back. What are you doing? Everybody thought this guy's, what's wrong with this guy? But guess what? That's a picture of our God. Because keep in mind, then we got into Hosea's name means, anybody remember what Hosea's name means? Salvation. Salvation or Hosea, he is Salvation. Who's Hosea a picture of? God. Who's Gomer a picture of? Israel and us, all human beings who have been unfaithful to the Lord. Hosea's name is, it's not an accident. You guys, God is so sovereign. And it blows me away because we have free moral agency, choice, you know? And he just weaves it all together still. You can't get your brain around it. It literally hurts my brain. When I think about this, I try to plummet the depths of, of understanding. And, you know, Romans 11 talks about how deep, you know, it's beyond understanding fully, uh, even close to fully, what God's doing here. But he's given us, he's revealed the secret things unto us. Or I'm sorry, he's revealed things to us, but the secret things belong to him. Because we see through a glass darkly, but there'll be a time where we know as we're known. But right now he's revealed us enough of his plan where we can, and we should be, in absolute awe of him constantly. Because we can't get our brain, there's so much in the scripture that we can get our brains around if we study that we can't even plummet it because we don't have enough time in this lifetime to really appreciate all of it. So it should never, it should never you know, dis, uh, dissuade us from pursuing greater and greater appreciation of who he is. It's really marvelous. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's mind-blowing. You know, and I'm telling you right now, that when you look at this, Hosea's name, he takes Hosea, and a guy named Hosea, salvation, or he saves. Was it Hosea saving her? Who's the one that said, hey, God did. But that was a picture of God saving us because God married them, Israel, who Gomer depicts at Sinai. He divorced her because she wouldn't come back, but he couldn't bring her back under that covenant. That's what you have to understand. That's why he divorced her. Because he quotes in Deuteronomy chapter 24, it says if a man divorces a woman and the, man becomes, the woman becomes a husband and another wife, if he brings her back to himself and marries, remarries her, it will pollute the land. Can't do it. Guess what? Israel became the wife of all these false gods. 
And he quotes Deuteronomy 24 in Jeremiah chapter 3 when he says, they gave you right in divorcement. He basically says, have I not said, he quotes Deuteronomy 24, that if a man brings his wife back after she's married another, that it will pollute the land. And why? Because God is, if we deny him, he will deny us. Because if we're unfaithful, he remains faithful. The point there is he remains faithful to who he is. The God that will have to deny us because of his holiness. Some people quote that as though it's a contradiction in the two verses. No. He's basically saying if we're unfaithful, he remains faithful to what? If we deny him, he's going to deny us. Because if we're unfaithful, he remains faithful because it says right after that, he cannot deny himself. So he can't deny who he is. So he can't bring them back under their rebellion because he would pollute the land. So he divorces them. But wait a minute. When you read Hosea, when you read Jeremiah, when you read Isaiah, but he's not done with her. He's got a plan. It's like, what's the plan? You can't bring her back, you said. What's the plan? The plan was, he can't bring her back under the old covenant. But he can bring her back under a new covenant, amen? Praise God for his incredible grace, amen? Because he can bring her back if he makes a brand new covenant with her, not based on the old covenant, she deserves death. So guess what? Hosea is a picture of his plan, God becomes a man. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was given with God. And everything that came to be came in be by Him. And nothing that came to be came in but by Him. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And His name is Yeshua, Jesus. Yeshua is very similar to Hosea from the same root. And it literally means it's stronger than Hosea, though. Instead of He saves, it's God saves. Right? Yeshua. God becomes a man. To pursue who? Israel. Salvation is first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles, the Greeks, and so forth, right? Not just for the Jews. Now he's pursuing her. And guess what? God in the flesh is doing more than Hosea. Hosea was a picture of him. He's calling her to himself. Amen? And did Jesus whip out, you know, Homer and half of barley and 15 shekels to get Israel? No. Because the Bible says, as we saw, that the soul is costly. No one can redeem his own brother. Only God could redeem us. But guess what? The penalty of death, the penalty of sin is death. He had to, we're either going to pay it or he's going to pay it for us. How could he do it? He's got to, it says without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. He doesn't have blood. Yeah, well, that's why he became a man. And as a God man, he took upon himself a human body so he could make that payment that we deserved because of our sin. The wage of sin is death. He's going to die in our place and make the ultimate sacrifice, amen? And that's why it says we weren't redeemed by corruptible things like silver and gold, but by the precious blood of an unblemished lamb, amen? And that in Acts chapter 20, it says God redeemed us with his own blood. Mind-blowing, amen? Now, I want to encourage you guys to wrap your heart and your brain around that because that should inspire us to live for the Lord. And I want you to also understand that when you're talking about Jesus, so many people, and it breaks my heart, happens all over the place, thousands of churches. John 3, 16, it's beautiful for God to live the world that gave his only begotten son. But they don't go beyond that. There's so much depth here, you know? And that's why you want to read the Old Testament, not just the New. You can't really understand the New Testament, appreciate it without the Old. You know, praise God, you have a Gideon New Testament. That's great if you're using that, but guess what? You want your Old Testament. When you read about the Lamb of God in the New Testament, how do you know who that is or what that signifies unless you understand when Paul says our Passover lamb was slain for us, what, who's our Passover lamb? What's it talking about? You need to know the Old Testament, amen? There's so many things like that throughout the New Testament. So there's quotations in the New Testament from the Old Testament. Like I'm going to quote, I'm going to show you a quotation in the New Testament from Hosea 
that applies to you and it's all about you and not just the Jews. And for our Jewish believers, of course, this book pertains to you as well. So God becomes a man. Hosea is a picture of God becoming a man, Yeshua, who gives himself sacrificially to win humanity to himself and pay for our sins. Amen? So now that we're pretty much caught up, uh, what happens? In Jeremiah 31, several chapters after he says, I give, gave her right a divorcement, he says he's going to make a new covenant with her. Amen? Couldn't save her under the old covenant. In the new covenant, see, he wasn't done with Israel. And he's still not done with Israel. Amen? In fact, Israel's right where he said Israel would be. Right? And then when he comes back, second coming of Christ, says he'll turn ungodliness from Jacob and all Israel will be saved. But all the first people that got saved when Jesus came were Jews for the most part. And Jeremiah 31, it says in verse 31 and 32, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. New covenant. Not just Israel with the house of Judah. A new covenant. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them up out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they what? Broke. The fathers of Israel and Judah. He's talking about they broke the marriage covenant. He says it right here real clearly. Although I was a husband to them. I was a husband to Israel. I was a husband to Judah. That's who he's talking about. I was a husband to them. Declares the Lord. But they broke the covenant. Therefore I'm making a what? He didn't say, therefore, I'm just wiping them out because I can't bring them back because I'll pollute the land. Exclamation point. No, it's not over. He's going to make a new covenant with them. And it really, really, really breaks my heart because there's so many amillennialists and post-millennialists who just, you know, especially a lot of the post-mills, oh, God's done with Israel. They don't have a future anymore. The church has replaced Israel. They're just like any other nation now. Are you blind to what the scriptures say about God not being done with Israel? Read Romans chapter 11. Are you blind with what's going on right now? Israel's the only nation after a two, three centuries of not being a nation that to become a nation again out of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, thousands of different people groups. Pfft, blow mind. And they become a world power. And they're hated more than any other nation pretty much around the world. That's all Biblical. Now, it's interesting because he's going to make a new covenant with them. He's going to write their law, his law in their hearts. And we read in Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 10 in the New Testament, Hebrews, that this is fulfilled and being fulfilled in what God has done and brought Jews and Gentiles to himself. Yet, Isaiah chapter, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 11, he's still not done with national Israel. And there'll be a time, and there's a lot of prophecies that relate to when he returns that Israel will be saved and turned back and a nation will be saved in a day. Now, it's interesting. He makes this new covenant with them. Remember, what kind of covenant was it? Metaphorically speaking, a marriage covenant, right? When Jesus pours the cup of redemption, he says, this is what? The day before he's crucified, the Passover service before he's crucified, he says this, and in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, and this is what he says, the cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant. The cup which is poured out for you is what? The new covenant in my blood. So the next day, he's going to be shedding his blood for the sins of the nation. Amen? Pours them a cup. And by the way, guess what? In those days in ancient Israel, when a man was proposing to his prospective bride, he'd go to her house. Parents were there. His parents, her parents. 
And Jesus' father was there, by the way. He's everywhere, right? And he would pour her a little wine. And if she drank it, she's saying, I want to, I want to enter into a covenant, marriage covenant relationship with you. If she pushed it aside, poor guy, right? You know, mom, dad, can we go? It's uncomfortable, you know? <laughs> so, of course, the disciples, you know, even offered it to Judas. Don't say that Jesus didn't die for, only died for certain people. You, you go and read the text. Even Calvin admits it, you know, that uh, he offered it to Judas as well. And it's interesting. That, that blood was shed for you, guys, for me, all of us. And he offers them the new covenant. Now, it's interesting because if you go to Hosea chapter 2 now, go ahead and read with me, Hosea chapter 2 about this covenant, that God would make a covenant, not only this covenant, this new covenant, but a covenant that would extend to creation. Uh, Verse 14. Verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. Now, this is quite amazing to me. I will allure her, bringing her into the wilderness, and speak kindly to her. Does that sound familiar? Do you remember last week when we went to Jeremiah chapter 2 and when he first called Israel to himself? As a nation, corporately, in the wilderness, he wooed her and betrothed himself to her, right? That was the first covenant. What's going on here, guys? When he brings her back to himself, when God becomes a man, Yeshua, he's going to do that again. And right now, guess what the Holy Spirit does? Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, of righteousness, of judgment, amen? He draws us to the Father, Draws us to Jesus. He said, nobody can come to me unless the Father draws him. Amen. Thank God. In John chapter 12, it says, Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Amen. Same Greek word, by the way. But not everybody's going to respond. But he draws us. We don't just wake up saying, I want to seek Jesus. I have such a heart for God. I'm such a, 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 you know, a God-centered person. No. No one seeks the Lord. Amen. That's why he has to convict us by his Holy Spirit. He draws all men. Most people don't come. And if you do come, it's by cut because he drew you, right? By his grace. You had to say yes, but that's no better than a beggar opening his hand. You're receiving a gift. There's no merit in that. God gives grace to the humble, though. He resists the proud. You have to humble yourself. But I w- look at this. Verse, verse 14, therefore, behold, I will lure her, bring her into the wilderness, and speak kindly to her. Then I will give her vineyards from there, and the, val- uh, and the valley of Achor as a door of hope. Now, it says, and she will sing there as in the days of her youth. Now, this is pretty heavy. The Valley of Achor is going to become a door of hope, and she's going to sing there? Wait, man. She's going to become enslaved first. She's going to wish she was dead at certain points. She's going to have such a hard time, but guess what? He's going to cause springs in the desert in the Valley of Achor. By the way, the Valley of Achor means, Achor means trouble, Valley of Trouble. comes from Achan. Remember Achan? And what did Achan do? Remember what he did when they were called not to loot the people that they were defeating? He took the Babylonian garment, took some riches from the people that they just had victory over. He wasn't supposed to, and he hid it under his tent. And Achan was aching, amen? He was in trouble. God called him out because they went to fight Ai. And Ai is just this little, you know, little people group that they should have been able to wipe out easy as they were going into the promised land and taking it over and they were getting their rear ends kicked. And God said, you know what? <laughs> There's sin in the camp. 
and Achan and his family were stoned to death. The valley of Achor, valley of trouble. But guess what? God reverses the curse. Jesus said in John 12, my spirit is troubled unto the point of death. He took the Achor. He took the aching. Instead of Israel being wiped out, he was stripped naked like Gomer was, remember? He was put on the cross. He was troubled to the point of death. Why? Because as he was going into the Garden of Gethsemane, he was sweat as it were, drops of blood with sweat. He was troubled deeply, so deeply, because he was going to bear the entire weight of the world's sin upon himself. Amen? And it's because of God doing that in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man, that the Valley of Achor can become a door of hope now. Amen? Where there was no hope and it was just trouble, now there's hope. Where there was trouble in your life and in my life before we came to Jesus. Amen? Because of our sin. Our sin caused a lot of trouble. Amen? Because Jesus bore our sins on the cross. He becomes what was trouble through what he did. Now he becomes the door of hope to heaven. Amen? There's so much here. I want to stop everywhere. But we're not going through the actual book verse by verse. We're just doing two messages on it. But it says, And she will sing there as in the days of her youth. Remember when he first brought her out of the wilderness or out of Egypt, right? And betrothed himself to her. And she was happy. Praise God. She's set free, you know. And of course, many of them got hardened, you know. But he said, bring her back to her first love. This is beautiful. And this is through what God's going to do. And this is future from uh, the perspective when this was written, as in the days when she came, now look at, I'm not just thinking this is going back to Egypt, look at, as the days when she came up from the land of what? Egypt, it's right there in the text, okay? It's just, the Bible just goes like this, man. And we've been brought out of spiritual Egypt, out of spiritual darkness, amen? Verse 16, and it will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that you will call me Ish, Ishi, and will no longer call me Baali, or Baal, you know? You're not going to call me by the false names of other gods. Like an adulterous woman who slips and uses the name of a, another man, maybe perhaps when she's with her husband. Israel would come and then she'd tra- claim to be worshiped the true God and just use the name Baal. And that just broke God's heart. And she, he said, you'll no longer do that. Verse 17, for I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth so that they will be mentioned by their names no more. We're talking about total restoration at this point. In that day, I will make a covenant for them. What? Check that out. That day, I'll make a covenant for them with the beast of the field, with the birds of the, the sky, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow and the sword and the war in the land. Wow. And I will make them lie down in safety. I will, now look at verse 19. I will what? I will betroth you to me forever. He's going to marry them. Isn't that a trip? Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness and in compassion. And how did that happen? In righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness and compassion. Because guess what? God is love, but he's also holy and righteous. Amen? And the Bible talks about how righteousness and mercy kissed. Where did they kiss? At the cross. Because God is righteous and sin had to be paid for. He paid for it himself. And he took our sin upon himself, amen? Became a propitiation for our sins so that we could become the righteous of God and so he could have mercy upon us and forgive us, amen? They kiss at the cross because it's there that he suffered the penalty that we deserved and it's there that because he suffered that penalty that we're able to embrace him and have a relationship with him. 
I got into the theology of that last Wednesday a little bit, not talking about Hosea or this verse at all, but another verse that talks about how they kissed. Verse 20, and I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, then you will know the Lord, Yahweh. Jesus is Yahweh, amen. Jesus, our Yeshua is, is Yahweh. Now it's interesting, look at chapter six, verses one through three. There's so much in this book. Come, let us return to the Lord. Now remember, God told, or I should say Hosea, told Gomer when she was stripped naked being sold as a slave and he paid 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley, he told her that she could come and be reunited to him if she remained faithful. And he gave it a certain amount of days before he'd even be with her to prove her faithfulness to prove that she would abide faithful and not just come around for a few days and have a change of heart. She had to be repentant. And guess what? God calls Israel and he calls all of us to be repentant. Amen? Have a change of heart and a change of mind and truly turning to him in our hearts and it's showing up in our lives and the fruit of the way we live. Come, let us return to the Lord for he has torn us and he will heal us. He has wounded us and he will bandage us. Isn't that interesting? This is a cryptic picture of what Jesus would do for us, what he would do for Israel and everybody. It says, he has torn us, but he, has, uh, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. This passage is a picture of Christ's death and his resurrection on the third day. Because guess what? Did Gomer deserve just under the Mosaic law to just become a slave or worse? Worse, death, right? In their rebellion against the law of Moses, did they deserve just, you know, to be enslaved for so why? So long or what? Death. It's all over the scripture. The soul that sins will die. Well, guess what? How in the world do they get redeemed? He was torn for us, the scriptures say. It says, he has wounded us, but guess what? He didn't kill him off, though. He took their place. He was wounded for our transgressions, it says in Isaiah 53, amen. The sin of us all came upon him. The iniquity of us all came upon him. He was cut off, though. He wasn't just wounded. He was fully killed. He was cut off, it says, from the land of the land of living. I believe this is definitely a picture of what's the gospel. You know why? Look at the next verse. He will revive us after what? Two days. He will raise us up on the what? Third day. What does that make you think of, guys? The resurrection. Amen. Now, if you're a Jew reading that, and it says that we may what? That we may live before him. Amen. It's only when you identify with Jesus being wounded for us, dying for us, and rising on the third day. After two days, he was revived on the third day. And rising on the third day, it's only through your identification with Jesus and what he did for your sins that you can live before him and be forgiven. Amen. This is, remember, God knows exactly what he's doing. Okay. And it's spelled out far more clearly in Isaiah chapter 53, but he leaves a lot of hints along the way. And he puts it cryptically at times because at the same time, when Christ comes into the world, they're going to have hardened hearts and he's going to use that hardness of the hearts of the priests and so forth, and the Sadducees and the Pharisees to bring forth the crucifixion and the resurrection to bring forth life. So it's not always clearly stated and then afterwards, then their eyes are open, and it says 
uh, when a person turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Something, oh, the veil is removed, then you turn to the Lord. No. When you have a heart to turn to the Lord in response to him drawing you, then it says, then the veil is removed. Then he'll give you greater light. And guess what? Many of the Jews understand, stood, wow. And this isn't like a new understanding of these verses, you know. Since we get into church history, uh, this is understood as a picture of, of the resurrection and them entering into the resurrected Christ's life. So guess what? Christ is going to die, right? And it's, it, on the third day, because of what he did, the Bible says we died in Christ, but you know what it says? We rose with him. When did he rise? On the third day. How do we rise with him? Because he was dying for us. He died for the world. The whole world died with him. Perspectively, they can accept what he did on the cross. The payment was already made for the world. But perspectively, they can benefit and be justified, forgiven, if they accept what he's done. And the fact that he rose on the third day is speaking of his resurrection, which says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 4, that he died on the third day. I'm sorry, he died for our sins according to scriptures, and he rose on the third day. Now, verse 3, so let us, uh, let us know, uh, let us press on to know the Lord. So let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His goings forth uh, is as certain as the dawn, and he will come to us like the rain. Wow. Like the spring rain watering the earth. He was risen in the spring. His goings forth is like the certainty of the dawn. It's a, it's a done deal. No one's going to thwart God's plan of salvation. Amen. And Jesus rose from the dead. It's just beautiful. Uh, now, this is what blows me away. And when I did the wedding portraits of Christ and his bride, one of the things I did, I went through all these different things throughout the scripture in the New Testament where it shows that Christ came as a bridegroom for his bride, just like Hosea. He came as bridegroom. And I'm going to go through really quickly because I want to get done on time for you guys. I'm going to go through many of these scriptures quickly in the New Testament, so you won't probably have time to turn to them, but if you're a note taker, you can write them down. We see that Jesus is identified as the beloved bridegroom. He identifies him as such in Matthew chapter 9, verse 15. The bridegroom coming for his bride. And Jesus said to them, Matthew 9, 15, the attendants of the groom cannot mourn as long as the groom is with them, can they? Because they're saying, how come your disciples don't fast? Like the disciples of the Pharisees and so forth. He says, because the disciples of the, of the groom cannot mourn as long as the groom is with them, can they? I mean, it's a happy time. The groom's there, right? But the days will come when the groom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Jesus was, is the groom. In fact, in John chapter 3, verse 29, Jesus says, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom stands and listens for him, and he's overjoyed to hear the bridegroom's voice. The joy is mine, and it is now complete. Well, that joy is mine. It's now complete. You know, in the parable of the wedding feast, Jesus talked about the kingdom of heaven being like a king having a wedding for his son. Amen. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who held a wedding feast for his son. When Jesus returns... For his bride, he describes it in Matthew chapter 25 that, guess what? <laughs> the bridesmaids better be ready. You know, everybody better be ready, right? Matthew 25, 1. Then the kingdom of, of heaven is likened unto ten virgins which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom, right? And the voice of the bridegroom they hear and so forth. And five are, you know, they all wake up, but five trim their lamps, five run out of oil and so forth. Pretty powerful picture. Now, it's really amazing 
because Jesus also described himself. Because what would happen in ancient days is when a husband-to-be would take a new wife, then what he'd do prior to that typically is he would build a room or more on his father's house. So, I mean, in those days, you could go and you could see it was, there was like huge compounds almost, you know, where you'd have the father's house, could be from generations back, and others, you know, his sons and then his sons, and they could be connected to one degree or another. Pretty, pretty awesome, you know, as long as you had a good family. <laughs> you know, maybe not for some people, and definitely not for some people. But look what Jesus says here, as he's taking his bride, the church, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many mansions, the King James, or many rooms. Uh, if that were not so, I would have told you, because I'm going to prepare, I'm what? I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. This is pretty heavy. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'm coming back and will take you to myself, so that where I am, you will be also. In my Father's house there are many rooms, Amen. I'm going to prepare a place for you. So this is quite amazing when you think about it. Jesus is the bridegroom and he's preparing a place for us, right? As Keith Green used to say, if, that this world is like living in a garbage dump compared to what's going on up there, right? Because if he could create that world and this, this creation in six days, what do you think it's going to look like after 2,000 years, Amen. Now, it's not a perfect analogy because it's not like for 2,000 years he's been working on it. But guess what? He has in a way. Because what are the gemstones? Because I thought about that. I go, well, it's not like he's taken him 2,000 years, you know. But I like what you're saying there, Keith. But then I thought about it later. Oh, you know what? He's working on it all the time. Because we're the living stones, amen? We're the gems that the light of Christ is going to shine through in New Jerusalem. Not the only gems. And he's working on us every day, amen, to fit us into his kingdom. So yeah, that's right. It is going, he has been working on it for 2,000 years. When you think about it, right? Pretty heavy. Now, it's interesting because the apostle Paul, when he talks about the church, he talks about, he says, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy because he doesn't want us to be led astray from false gospels, a different spirit, you know, a different Jesus, you know, the Jesus of Bethel or something or something that's, you know, this feel-good prosperity Jesus that just wants everybody rich and healthy and doesn't want you to, to suffer so much and all that stuff. Uh, or the word faith movement, I should say, the prosperity movement. There's a lot of the emergent Jesus, you know, less than the Jesus of the Bible. For I am jealous of you with a godly jealousy, for I betroth you to one husband. Wow. Paul's saying he's jealous for the church because he betrothed her to one husband. Wow. And what does Paul say in Matthew 20, or Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 and 27? Husbands, love your wives as what? Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for. In other words, husbands, Christ's a picture for you to emulate. And you love your wife the way he loved the church because the church is his bride. It's just heavy. So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she would be holy and blameless. Wow. And think about that. Paul also declares uh, that the husband becoming one with his wife is a picture of becoming one with Christ. In Ephesians 5, 28. It says, so husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. 
For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. Because we are, because we are, listen, it's because we are parts of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife. For what reason? Because we're parts of his body. Because there's something bigger going on, and a man will leave his parents and cleave to his wife and become one with her. Why? Because we're parts of his body. Don't miss what he's saying there. He's saying God set up and created husband and wife relationships to be a picture, a living illustration. How a husband ought to love his wife as Christ loved the church just because she's part of his body now. And we're part of the body of Christ. And God is doing something really heavy in the marriage by using your marriage to point to the gospel and, and Christ's plan because we are parts of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great. This, this musterion is mega, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Guys, you know what? It's so important, you guys. Husbands, it's so important that you lay your life down for your wife. And you're like, man, I could do that, Joe. Could you? You got to pray that you would be able to. Could you lay your life down for your wife? If someone was carjacking, taking your car, and your wife was there and going to take her hostage, and you're pumping gas, would you just like, okay, as long as I didn't take me, you know? Careful how hard you laugh. Just kidding. No. You know what? You, you may do everything you can to stop him, amen? It might cost you life. Could you do that? That's something you should be praying that you should do. I can tell you if you could do that or not. Are you doing that today? Are you doing the little things to lay down your life for your wife now? Think about that. If you cannot take out the trash for your wife, how can you lay your life down for and shed your blood for her, Amen? Don't want to get anybody in trouble, but hey, it's part of my job, you know, just kidding. Be, be loving toward one another, forgiving, merciful. If you can't, you know, do anything to help her, you know what I'm saying? Well, it's my wife's job to clean up the dog poop, to take out the trash, to fix the broken things, to, you know, she's my servant, you know. You guys, we have to make sure as men that we're going the extra mile, Amen. The Bible says the woman is the glory of the man. The woman's hair is her glory. And the glory of the man is the woman. And they're, not de- they're dependent upon one another. They're not independent of each other. My wife's my glory. And if my wife is not joyful and I'm not blessing her and treating her right, then I've got to see what am I doing wrong. Now, I don't say that you can't be laying your life down and your wife will automatically be joyful if you are. I mean, guess what? Jose was laying his life down. His wife was probably miserable, right? So don't think. I, I talked to one elder years ago. He said, I always tell people, it's not just one person's fault. It's both your fault, whatever you're going through. And I said, you can't say that. It's not always one person's fault. Sometimes it's more one person's fault than the other, and they're both at fault to one degree or another. That's true. I go, but you have to make, sometimes somebody can be totally walking with the Lord and do what's right, and it's not their fault at all in this, whatever situation they're going through. You say we all have sin, we all need to be humble, you know. But, so it's not always that way, but husbands, we need to make sure we're doing our part, amen, and that we're laying our lives down and that we're going the extra mile. And, and if your, your wife is, you know, in a situation where she's not communicating with you, where she's hurt, you know, it could be that it's, you've done, you haven't done any, you know, 
horrific thing to cause that. She could be going through something from a relationship with a friend or something that she's going through hormonally. Women are far more complex than men, you know. I mean, they are. They're baby factories, you know. Think about that. There's a lot going on there that's not going on in the men, you know. I remember Ray Comfort. He had the audacity to write a book, Everything a Man Can Know About a Woman. And he showed me it. No kidding. It's a true story. He goes, check this book out I wrote. First time I saw the book. And it was a small book, too. It was like a little paperback. I'm like, what in the world? And then you flick the pages, and every page is empty. <laughs> I mean, you can't know much, you know, because women are pretty complex. Ray's a pretty funny guy. <laughs> oh, man. But guess what? We can know what the Lord says and how to treat our wives, amen, and love them and lay our lives down for them. Spend time with them. Give them time. Amen. Guys, I mean, and I had to learn through the years. I was just doing some marriage counseling today. And uh, today, Lisa, you need to get up for church. That was my counselor. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I was just doing some marriage counseling a few days ago. And uh, Lisa actually joined me after about halfway through. And uh, I let him know. I go, you know what? Uh, Communication is huge. And it's important. And uh, I remember, man. And I said, you have to be disciplined. Because I remember as a new pastor, man, and I was still working full time, you know, setting tiles, a tile setter, and I'm putting messages together, and I'm just juggling all these things. And my wife would come in, and I might be typing, and she'd be talking, you know. And I'm, and I'm hearing her, but I'm not listening because I'm working. And i got to get this done. I mean, i got how much time, and I'm just trying to juggle everything. And, but no, no excuse because guess what? She's my wife. And... She'd be saying, did you hear a word I said? And guess what? I could quote back everything she said, word for word. And she'd always be like, <laughs> but I'd have, as I'm quoting it all back, I'm processing what she said. That's giving me, I'm catching up. Yeah, you said da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Okay, <laughs> you know. And she's laughing back there because she tells people the same story. But you know what? I realize, you know what? I need to listen better and give her my heart and my time. Now, we spent time together and stuff, but there's times when I was like that where I'm not spending the time and she needs me. But also at the same time, I sometimes have three or four things in my mind that tie together. And as you know, the way I teach is like I want to connect the dots. And if I, she starts talking and I break it. I'm like, part, part way through my paragraph, what was I writing? You know, so it's tough that way too. So I told Lisa, I go, so I had to discipline myself, though, because I had to love her better. I had to love her more. And I had to say, you know what, baby? I go, can you do me a favor? Can you come in? And, and if I'm right in the middle of typing a, a, a paragraph, and we do this to this day. She'll come in and she might wait 20 seconds. Just let me finish what my thought was, you know? And then, boom, I'll lock on to her. I've done this for years and years and years because she's my wife. She's my beloved wife. I love her. I want her. She's going through things. I need to hear her, and I can't just wait till this time of the day and that time of the day, or you know, because we do. We we spend a lot of time together actually because she's my secretary, you know, and it's awesome. But that's really blessed our lives. What I'm saying, husbands, you have to discipline yourself and say, okay, am I spending enough time with my wife to where we're communicating together and she she has joy that I'm listening to her and we're a team. And that's one thing my wife will tell people when we do marriage counseling, especially when we do premarital counseling, and I'll talk to them about being teammates. She'll always share with them, almost always, that I've always made her feel like a teammate, you know? When I've gone on mission trips, I brought her with me almost, almost every time. And, you know, from the get-go, when I was pastoring the church, I said, hey, I need to make sure I'm not one of those pastors who's not with his wife and kids, you know? 
Because that's what happens in a lot of relationships. You know, it's like the guy who fixes cars, but his is always broken, or the woman who cleans houses, but her house is always dirty. A lot of times pastors, and to be a pastor, you have to manage your household well. But a lot of, a lot of pastors' families are falling apart. So I always made sure I made my wife and my children a priority. Because guess what? If you can't manage the household of God, it says, how can you manage the church? Or you can't manage your own home, how can you manage the church? So it's important that we are, and by the way, that's for all of us. God wants us all to be the husbands he's called us to be, amen. And wives, God calls you to be a godly wife to your husband, amen. And to follow his leadership, unless he tells you to do something that's unbiblical. And to support him and, and, to, and, and to pray together. You guys should be praying together. Are you praying together as couples? It's important to do that. Rochelle, you just smiled and looked at Jim and he just smiled and looked at you. You guys pray together? Do you really? I'm just kidding. They know I know they pray together. And that's, they, I love their relationship in Jesus, you know. And guess what? They're smiling together. They're close together. All, you know what? That old saying, a family that prays together, what? Say together. That's real, man. Well, I don't know if I'm going to pray in front of my wife because that could be embarrassing. Get over it, man. Just start praying. Be the leader you're called to be. Amen? Just talk to God and she'll, res she'll respect you even more for that. You know? Well, what if she makes fun of my prayers? Well, then pray for her. If she's making fun of your prayers, she needs, she needs Jesus. You know? <laughs> you know? <laughs> she needs help. You know? But just, you, you love each other. You accept each other and you're growing together. And just that you're going forward is huge. Amen? So it's important that we, we walk together and that we're mature as couples. Pray together. Read the word together, you know. Lisa and I are always talking about the word. Poor Lisa. You're, you're married to a pastor, you know. You can sometimes get cross-eyed, you know, and, uh, as far as, you know. But she loves Jesus, you know. And it's just been beautiful. And just want to encourage you in that, guys and, and wives, you know. Pursue the Lord together. And if you're both seeking Jesus, I always like to use that analogy. You know, like Jesus is here. If you're here and your spouse is here, you're both pursuing Jesus, what's happening? You're getting closer and closer to each other, amen? And that's the key, is both of you be seeking the Lord and supporting each other, and supporting each other's relationships, God praying for each other. Can't tell you how important it is to pray for your spouse. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. What did he do? He sacrificed himself, amen? But it says he cleansed her in the, with the washing of the water of the word. That means he spoke the word of God to her constantly. Look what he does with his disciples. He's, he's the word made flesh, so whenever he speaks, it's the word of God, right? You know, so you speak the words of Jesus, though. You know, and you cleanse your wife through that. It says he cleanses her through washing the water of the word, Ephesians 5. And that's in the context of how we're supposed to love our wives as Christ loved the church. You mean I need to know the word? Yeah. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. If, if, if one of the wives would know anything, let them ask their husbands. In other words, husbands, you need to know the word. How could he write that unless, and guess what? They didn't have, they can go down and get NAS, NAB, NASB, NIV, ESV, Living Bible, whatever, Amplified Bible. They couldn't just go get that at the Bible books. There's no Bible bookstore. You couldn't even have a Bible then. You just, they had parchments around of parts of the Gospels and sometimes fuller, uh, you know, uh, versions of the Gospel when the church was very new. And then the New Testament letters weren't even written yet for the most part, right? So they had very, but they had the Old Testament, amen? And they didn't have most, I mean, it was very rare if somebody had the Old Testament scrolls. But they would memorize the scripture. They would get involved in fellowship. They would, and they, they would know, they learn the word. Men, you have no excuse not to know the word of God now because guess what? You have a Bible. And it's a shame if you know all the scores of all the gains more than you know where Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are. Turn to the gospel of Matthew. You don't want to turn your wife and say after. Now, if you're brand new, you're a few days old in the Lord or a few weeks. But if you've been like a Christian for years, honey, is that in the Old Testament or New Testament? Matthew. No, you don't, want to go, you don't want that to happen to you. Guess what? We all need to grow in our knowledge, amen? None of us see perfectly, but 
the desire, the desire to grow needs to be there because you need to have answers to be able to lead your wife in the way everlasting, amen? You need to lead your kids. So men, get in the word, amen? Wives, get in the word. You know, it's interesting too because Paul speaks of the spiritual union back to Christ being the bridegroom and the church being the bride. He speaks of this spiritual union to the Corinthians. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself with a prostitute is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh, but the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Think about that. Two become one flesh. Guess what? When we come to Christ, we become one spirit with him. It's a picture of marriage. It's so profound. It's so powerful. And we understand that. I remember counseling a couple where the wife was leaving the husband. They were brand new at the church. Or they weren't even going to the church. They were just visiting from far away. And he saw one of the videos I'd done. And they were getting divorced. And then after I shared this Megan Wisteria on Christ and his bride, it blew them away. And she came to Christ. He ended up saying, I had no idea that this is what marriage was. I thought it was more just like living together. And it transformed his understanding of marriage. In fact, in, first, in Romans chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, Paul talks about being freed from the law. Because as long as the man, husband and wife, they're, they're, it's a marriage. Unless, you know, of course, uh, one dies. And he says, we've died to the law. Because the law slays us, amen. And now we're able to be reunited, he says in Romans 7, 3, 4, to Christ. To come to Christ, I should say, be united, not reunited. Be united to Christ and become one with him and bear fruit unto God. Bear fruit unto God. He's talking about marriage there. How do we bear fruit unto God? He's not talking about physical children. He's not talking about physical sex. But when we become one with Christ and we're one spirit with him, we bring forth spiritual children in the context of spiritual fruit to God, amen. We bring forth uh, souls by being the lights and witnesses, the songs of our lips, the praise of our lips is called the fruit of our lips. There's the fruit of righteousness. There's all kinds of wonderful fruit that comes forth from having a relationship with Jesus. And when Jesus comes back, you go to the very end of the book, Revelation. When he comes back, what does he come back for? Who? His bride. Revelation 17, verse 9, let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him because the marriage of the lamb, the marriage of the lamb, the marriage of the lamb, that is Jesus, has come and his bride has prepared herself or made herself ready. Wow. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, right, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Wow. Verse 11, I saw heaven open and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and wages war. When Jesus comes back at his second coming to judge the world, he's coming back for his bride who's been prepared and will continue to be prepared even now. And through the tribulation, we'll get even more prepared because that's when huh, you'll see who's who and his, his bride will really shine, you know. And guess what? There at the end, go to Revelation chapter 21. The very last two chapters of Revelation, you go to chapter 21, verses 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven. Just go to the end of the Bible. Revelation chapter 21. Second to last chapter of the Bible. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a what? Bride adorned for husband. That's the place Jesus is preparing. And God's with men, verse 3, he wipes away every tear. There's no more death, no more mourning, verse 4. He who sits on the throne makes all things new. Uh, it's pretty heavy, man. You know, look at verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke to me saying, come here and I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit 
and, uh, to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone as a stone of crystal clear jasper. Wow. And it talks about the pearls, talks about the, the jewels and so forth. And he's going to come and pluck up his jewels, it says in Malachi. And we're going to shine his light forever. And won't have need of a son, it says, because the Father and the Son will be the lights of New Jerusalem. And we will refract, we will refract his glory. It's just mind-blowing. I can't wait because we're getting ready to go through Revelation chapter 21 and 22 because we're at the very last verse of chapter 20. But I've got all these topical things coming. And I was almost done with those topical things to get back into those books. But then COVID happened to me with the heart condition that developed. And by the way, God fixed all that. Thank God so far, that, as far as I know of, you know, everything's possible with the Lord. So whatever he wants to do. But, uh, and it just said a bunch of other messages in my heart that I wanted to share. God used that time. And by the way, just to, people are saying, my wife's like, you've got to give people updates. And, and I don't like, I said, I'll say where it's at, where I'm at, then we'll just move on because I don't want to talk about myself a lot. But I will say this. We just went to the hospital or the doctors last week, my, my primary care guy. And I also got an echocardiogram. And I learned when I got my echocardiogram my doctor said my heart is now in excellent shape by the grace of God. Anywhere between 50 and 75% is healthy. You can be anywhere. 50 could be near normal to 70%, I'm sorry. And it was at 34, remember? Then all of a sudden I found out it was 55. Now he told me it's at 60 to 65, which is great. So, and he told me he used the word excellent. And uh, I was also told that my heart had been enlarged and that left ventricular chamber was what they wanted it to. It was enlarged. It went down to normal size. And now by the grace of God, you know, and our primary care doctor told Lisa and I, when he looked at my, my blood from my kidney and my blood panels and all the, the heart and everything else, he's like, he told me this would be such a long deal to come to recover from all this. He was telling us last week, I saw him too. He said, he goes, Joe, he used the word miraculous to us. He goes, this is like a miraculous turnaround that all your numbers are good now. So thank you guys for the prayers because it wasn't my doing. I can tell, guarantee you that. It was by the grace of God and your prayers. So he is good, you know, he restores, so. Now, it doesn't mean, you know, three weeks from now I won't, you know, uh, be up in the wilderness to get bit by a rattlesnake and die. I don't know. Whatever the Lord has, I'm good with because he's good. Amen? So, he is good. Anyway, uh, so what's heavy about this is now, and let's try to get our brains around this. He says to them in Hosea 1.10, going back to Hosea now. Now, <laughs> you got to understand this. He prophesies. They're, they're, they're low ammy, you know, not, not pity, not compassion. Jezreel, valley of slaughter, you know, or land of slaughter. You guys are in trouble, low ruhamah, uh, no pity, right? All these things, right? Well, he says in Hosea 1.10, yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in, in the, the place where it's said, then you are not my people, it will be said what? To them what? You are sons of the living God. Whoa, he's going to change all this. He's going to change all this. And the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel, verse 3, will be gathered together. Wow, now it's prophetic about sons of Judah and Israel come together. They're, they've been separated. Guess what in Israel is going on right now? They're all united. There's not the ten tribes and the two separated anymore. A lot of these prophecies have already begun to come to pass, right? And the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered together, and they will appoint for themselves one leader, and they will go up to the land of, for the great day of the day of Jezreel. Woo, what in the world, the great day of Jezreel? And guess what's going to happen there, guys? We already saw Acor is going to become a, a, a spring, right? And going to be a, a gate of hope, right? And guess what? It's a blow mind because go ahead and go to chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1 of Hosea. Say to your brothers, Ami, and to your sisters, Ruhamah. Wait a minute. 
Say to them, what? What are their names? Their names are not Ami and Ruhamah. Their names are Lo-Ami and Lo-Ruhamah. Nope, he changes it. Call them now what? Ami means what? My children. Don't call them not my children now, not my people. Call them my people. And then call them what? Ruhamah. Not, not my, not pitied. Call them pitied. Compassion. I'm going to have compassion on them. So it's a blow mind. Look at chapter 2, verse 23. I will sow her for myself in the land. I will also have what? Compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. And I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. Praise the Lord. Amen. This is his plan in Hosea to, to restore them to himself through a sacrifice that would take place, pointing to Christ. And he never stopped loving them. When Israel was youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son, Hosea 11.1. 1. I led them with cords, not of, or cords of man, the bonds of love, Hosea 11.4, meaning our love is a picture of his love. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? 11.8 of Hebrews, or Hosea. Hosea 14.4, I will heal their disloyalty. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned for them as... I think King James says, I will heal their backslidings. But there has to be repentance. Hosea 14, 1 and 2. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive us all our sins and receive us graciously and that we may offer the fruit of our lips. There's that fruit again, you know. Wow. That's his plan. That's his plan. And in Romans 9, 23, it applies to the Gentile believers too. Because in Romans 9.23, he says, He did not make known the riches of his glory upon the vessels of mercy. I'm sorry. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon the vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not from among Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles, as he says also in Hosea, I will call those who are not my people my people, and her, uh, her who is not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, they shall be called sons of the living God. What's going on there? He's saying, just as Israel went astray and went into idolatry, and I'm going to redeem them, the Gentiles, which he talks about going into depravity and being given over up to idolatry and so forth in Romans 1, guess what? They're also going to become my people and part of that covenant. And I'm getting the chills right now. God is so good. Wow. Amazing love. Profound love. God brings her back. And you know what? You need to apply this to your lives. Roman, uh, don't commit adultery on the Lord. James 4, 4, you adulteress, as it says. Know you not that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whoever makes himself a friend of the world system, the evil world system, makes himself an enemy of God. And it says God desires a spirit that he's caused to dwell in us, and he's jealous for us. Don't, because he's made us. We belong to him. Amen? And you can only commit spiritual adultery if you're a believer, if you're saved. That's why it's serious. You've got to get back, come back to him, otherwise you become his enemy. He says in the Old Testament, don't grieve his spirit. Even though I saved them, I became their enemy. And then he says he wiped a lot of them out, you know? So God's very, very serious. And, and we were Gomer, man, all of us. And hopefully, and guess what? We're still Gomer. But hopefully we're the godly Gomer because Gomer came back, amen? And guess what? We want to be more like Hosea. He's also a human, right? He became a picture of a faithful husband, Christ-like, and that's what... Male and female, we need to be not faithful husbands, but faithful to God and to our spouses and to one another. Amen? 
So that's how you apply this. You, be, you become faithful. You, you don't love the world. Uh, we broke the Lord's heart. In Hosea eleven eight. it says, my heart is turned over within me. The Lord says, my heart is turned over within me. All my compassions are kindled, you know? We broke his heart, but he still loved us anyway, amen? And we need to remember that we were bought with a price, not with 15 shekels of silver, but the blood of Christ. And we read in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, do you not know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit who you have from God? He says, and that you are not your own, but you were bought with a price. Since you were bought with a price, what should we do? How do we apply that to our lives? Therefore, glorify God in your body. We need to make sure we're using our bodies to glorify the Lord, amen? Not living for ourselves, but living for him. Paul, after 11 chapters of extolling and, and promoting and lifting up and exalting God's grace in Romans, in chapter 12, he says, therefore, I beseech you, based on the mercies of God, which you just learned about for 11 chapters, what do you do? Offer up your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to the Lord, which is your reasonable service. And don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Amen? They may prove God's perfect will. Amen? So we now live our lives for Jesus and that we show how beautiful, how wonderful he is. And when you see how wonderful he is, you want to live for him more. Amen? And I close with this. When he says, don't be deceived, in, in 1 Corinthians 6, he's warning believers, by the way, because in verse 8, he says, you're defrauding your brethren. Gentiles, brethren, it's the church. You're defrauding your brethren. He says, don't be deceived, neither fornicators and adulterers and effeminate homosexuals, drunkards, thieves, extortion, all these people will not inherit the kingdom of God. You know what's heavy about that? In verse 11, he says, but such were some of you. He's talking to the believers. They're warned not to be deceived about going that route. Such were some of you. But you were what? He talks about how they were washed talking about the blood of Christ. You were justified, amen? We were sanctified, all these beautiful things. But such were some of you, meaning you were adulterers. You were thieves. You were drunkards. You were homosexuals. Such were some of you. We were Gomer. But you know what he goes on to say to them in 2 Corinthians 11 too, When he says, I betrothed you, as, uh, you know, when he says, I'm jealous over you, I betrothed you to one husband, that you would be a what? A pure virgin. That I'd present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Those who were involved in adultery, thievery, drunkenness, homosexuality, all those kinds of things, guess what? He now has cleansed us and washed us. It says you were washed. You were washed, verse 11, 1 Corinthians 6. 11, 2 of 2 Corinthians, to present you as the chaste virgin of the Lord. Your sins that bogged you down, that you were, would be condemned for if you weren't cleansed, are gone. Don't let the enemy harass you because of what you did in the past and who you were, amen? Thank the Lord that you've been cleansed if you've come to Jesus and you've repented of your sins and are now trusting him and you've been washed in the blood of Christ, amen? If you've been washed in the blood of Christ, I don't care all the things that the enemy's hindered you with, tried to bog you down with because of what you did in the past, you are forgiven. You are declared not guilty. You are declared righteous, no longer condemned because of the grace of Christ, amen? And you need to rejoice in that and realize you've been set free. And the Bible says, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Amen? That's no longer you. You're a new creation in Christ. Anyone who's a new creation in Christ, old things have passed away. Behold, all things, not most, not some, all things became new. So rejoice in Jesus, amen, as a believer. And live as a child of God. And be thankful to one who's greater than Hosea. Wow. And remember... Man, he didn't just bring you back. That would be radical, man. Could you imagine if Hosea, that story was put in movie form? 
you would say, God, man, that guy really loves her. People would be tripping out like, wow, he brought her back, man. That guy really loves her. And she's changed. Wow. Guess what? That's a small picture of what's happened for you also in real life. Amen? And he's preparing a place for you so you can be with him forever. So guess what? Just as Gomer should be like, I love my husband so much, I can't believe it. Now I've been cleansed. I've been paid for. I can see, you know, I don't ever want to go back to life again. We should be saying, man, I can't believe what Yeshua God is salvation has done for me. I want to live for him forever and be faithful to him forever. And I can't wait until he brings me into his eternal kingdom. Amen? Praise God. Can we please all stand up and we'll pass out the cup and the bread.